uh, there's, a, there's some truth in saying it's the most biblical book of the New Testament in the sense that uh, virtually everything in the book of Revelation has, uh, every verse has some kind of allusion or reference to a prior passage in the Old Testament, often several layers of allusion in one, in one short text of Revelation to try to figure out what's going on in Revelation. You really have to probe into the entire, into the prior Bible, not just the New Testament. So part of the effort was to just remind readers that to read the book of Revelation uh, with the remembrance that it's a book of the Bible and it's dealing with the same concerns that the rest of the Bible deals with. It's not suddenly projecting us out into the 21st century, out into the concerns of um, contemporary geopolitics. That's, those, aren't the, those aren't the issues that John and his audience are concerned with. They're concerned with first century issues. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine an Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of the most important books in the Bible, though also one of the most controversial books in the Bible, is the book of Revelation. In our English Bibles, it is the last book, and it's one that has been in the spotlight century after century. In part, this is because there are so many different interpretations of the book of Revelation. Sometimes I worry, though, that as Christians, we tend to get so focused on approaching this book as a type of code or or a book that's supposed to um, reveal when the end is going to happen, that we actually misunderstand the book, uh, what it, why it's been written in the first place, or even miss out on so much of its rich theology because we're trying to read the book like, say, a newspaper. Uh, and not just its theology, but also its Christology. I am amazed again and again as I return to the book of Revelation, how from beginning to end, it is coded and colored by Jesus Christ, uh, not only what he's done in the past for our salvation, but also uh, what he promises us uh, and what he holds out as a future hope uh, in the new heavens and earth. Well, one, there are many, many commentaries on the book of Revelation, but two uh, volumes have just released, uh, not that long ago, actually, by Peter Lightheart. Uh, these two volumes are a, a massive commentary on the book of Revelation, a significant contribution. And they uh, are written uh, from a seasoned scholar, one who uh, is president of the Theopolis Institute. Of course, he's written. You may know him from so many of his other books. Uh, he has a Brazos commentary coming out on First and Second Chronicles. He also has a book soon to release on the Ten Commandments, among many, many other books on exegesis, theology, as well as church history. And I have asked Peter to join us on the Creative Podcast to help us understand Revelation better. Peter, thank you so much for uh, joining uh, the, the Credo uh, listeners today. Thank you, Matthew. It's, it's wonderful to be with you. 
You know, when I first opened uh, this commentary on Revelation, it started in a way that I never, ever could have expected. Uh, And and I think you know what I'm talking about. I've never read a a commentary, uh, let alone a commentary on the book of Revelation, that started off with The Simpsons. And uh, you begin with that episode, the the Treehouse of Horror, uh, number eight. And uh, maybe you, we could just start off our conversation by describing, uh, maybe you could describe to us, what, what, what in the world do the Simpsons have to do with the book of Revelation and uh, perhaps the way that a lot of Christians tend to think of this book and even approach it? Well, um, I started with that. Uh, part of the, 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 that particular tone, I'm, the book is... Uh, is a serious contribution to the scholarship on Revelation, but I want uh, to write commentaries that are readable and enjoyable to read, so I thought uh, starting with something a little bit lighter was a, a good way to get into the mood, and I tried to try to do that periodically through the commentary and um, throw in a side that would be amusing to, at least to one or two readers, I hope. But the scene that you're describing, it's, it's a, The Simpsons has an annual... Uh, episode of the Treehouse of Horrors around uh, around Halloween, and this particular episode uh, it starts out with a scene from the cartoon that the children in The Simpsons like to watch, Itchy and Scratchy. It's like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, but it's hyper violent. And um, there's um, the two characters are uh, fighting. One starts stabbing it, and up behind him you see a a, a rating of the uh, the maturity level of the scene, and as he keeps stabbing, that maturity level is going up and up and up, and finally gets under, gets to 666, and that's the that's the maximum that's the maximum uh, level of horror and violence you can have in a in a cartoon, I guess, in the in Simpsons world. <laughs> um, and part of that was partly I was wanting to start there too because it does illustrate the pervasiveness of. Uh, certain symbols and ideas from the book of Revelation, even though the book as a whole may not be well known. Uh, if you say 666 to somebody, um, many people will know that that's associated in some, in some way with evil, uh, with the Antichrist, with Satan, uh, even, if they've, if, even if they've never read the entire book of Revelation. Mm. You know, when we uh, talk about how, you know, when we talk about the book of Revelation, we, we often jump right into it. Uh, everyone has those passages they, they want to talk about, and uh, maybe for all kinds of reasons. You, you mentioned at one point, though, that Christians and, and even non-Christians uh, tend to misread the book, and sometimes very badly. Uh, we, we sometimes bring what you call false expectations to the book, and uh, we, we do that in all sorts of ways. Are, in this commentary, are you not, uh, not not just commenting on the text, giving us the theology of the text, but are you also helping us to just approach the book uh, through a, an entirely different mindset? Yeah, intense. And uh, the, the simple, a couple of simple ways I've tried to describe uh, how Christians misread the book. Um, one is to, to forget that the book of Revelation is part of the New Testament. Um, people read uh, from Matthew to the book of Jude, and they know that certain things are going on. They're, you know, they have the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, the ministry of the Apostles. They have Paul with his concerns about the early Church, uh, Judaism, and the incorporation of the Gentiles into the people of God. 
uh, concerns with justification by grace through faith. Uh, and then when you get to the end of Jude, those concerns kind of disappear, and you turn the page and you're in the book of Revelation, and suddenly you're in a completely different set of issues and concerns. Um, that ha- that has to be a misreading of the book. Um, Revelation, on any on any dating of the book, uh, I take a kind of minority view on the date of the book, but on any date of the book, it's within the uh, early, uh, with either within the lifetime of the apostles or shortly thereafter. The latest dates that people give to the book are in the early second century. So the kinds of things that are going on in the rest of the New Testament are still going on in Revelation, and the concerns of Revelation are still the concerns of the rest of the New Testament. So that was one of the things that I was trying to think through, is how, how, does, how does Revelation fit with other things that we already find in, in the New Testament? The other, the other kind of formula I used was to think about um, it's not only a book of the New Testament, it's a book of the whole Bible. And it's, uh, I mean, it, it's always an exaggeration exaggeration to say something like this, but in uh, there's a, there's some truth in saying it's the most biblical book of the New Testament, in the mm. sense that uh, virtually everything in the book of Revelation has, uh, every verse has some kind of allusion or reference to a prior passage in the Old Testament, often several layers of allusion in one in one short text of Revelation to try to figure out what's going on in Revelation. You really have to probe into the entire into the entire Bible, not just the New Testament. So uh, part of the effort was to just remind readers that to read the book of Revelation uh, with the remembrance that it's a book of the Bible and it's dealing with the same concerns the rest of the Bible deals with. It's not suddenly projecting us into, out into the 21st century, out into the concerns of um, Contemporary geopolitics. That's, those aren't the those aren't the issues that John and his audience are concerned with. They're concerned with first century issues. They certainly have relevance for us that are applicable to our situation. But that's not the immediate concern of Revelation, and we read it wrongly if we if we make that leap. Mm-hmm. I love what you just said because uh, we tend to isolate the book of Revelation uh, and interpret it all on its own. But but as you just mentioned. Uh, this is a is a Christian book, and it fits within the Christian canon. Uh, at, at one point, you have uh, just a, a helpful chart where you even chronicle and, and detail uh, many of the many of Revelation's uses of the Old Testament. And I must admit, even my uh, you know, it, it, as I've read the the Book of Revelation in the past, I have not always paid attention. Uh, to the many allusions to the Old Testament throughout. Uh, you say at one point allusions to Old Testament events, persons, patterns, and structures. These are not poetic window dressing. They are actually determinative for the theology of Revelation. As you think back on on the book of Revelation and what you've written, uh, would, would you say that there are, uh, maybe there's one or two uh, Old Testament allusions that, that you feel are, are prominent, maybe even more than others, prominent throughout Revelation? Yeah, two, two come to mind immediately. Uh, the first is an explicit statement right at the beginning of Revelation, in uh, Revelation 1-7. Uh, John introduces himself, he gives a blessing to the seven churches that he's writing to. And then in verse 7 of the first chapter, he quotes from uh, Daniel 7, Behold, he's coming on the clouds, every eye will see him. Uh, 
many commentators recognize that that's a kind of thematic verse. Uh, it's, it's a summary of an important theme of the whole book. Um, what, what's important, I think, is not just to see that Daniel 7 is setting the frame for the book, but to go back to Daniel 7 and figure out what Daniel 7 is actually talking about mm-hmm. uh, when it talks about the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. That's that's the that's the reference. Um, uh, it's not just it's not just an illusion, but that's setting us up to understand what the what the message of Revelation is and what is what is the drama that's going on. So when you go back to Daniel seven, that that's the vision of Daniel where he sees a series of beasts coming up out of the sea that represent different ancient empires, and then after all these beasts have come out of the sea, he sees a fifth kingdom come. This is not a bestial kingdom. This is a kingdom of, of a human being, a son of man. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of Adam reference, Adam as the subduer of the beasts. Uh, and the the, the uh, reference to the Son of Man coming on the clouds in Daniel 7 is about the ascension of the Son of Man to receive the kingdoms and the power and authority that had belonged to the bestial empires. So when Daniel, I'm uh, sorry, when, when John uses that phrase, he's coming with the clouds, uh, referring back to Daniel 7, I think he means us to have Daniel 7 in mind, and the important part of that is that it's, an, it's about the ascension. What's, what's intriguing about that, what's odd about that, is that by the time John is writing, he's writing about things that are going to take place in the future, shortly, he says, to take place, but the ascension of Jesus is already past. That's something that's already in his past. It's not something he's looking forward to, and yet he talks about it as something that is still future. Um, he talks about it. The, the theme of my book, is, he says, in effect, is going to be the ascension of the Son of Man and the glorification of the Son of Man. But Jesus is already glorified. So in what sense is the Son of Man being glorified? And as we read the book through that lens, I think we see the, the, the point of that is that the Son of Man, in, even in Daniel 7, already represents more than just the individual Jesus. Uh, it's Jesus with his people. Uh, Daniel 7 includes a couple of references to the people of the saints of the Most High, who, along with the Son of Man, receive the kingdom. And that's what Revelation is about. It's not about the ascension of Jesus directly or the glorification of Jesus in his own resurrection and ascension. It's about the glorification of Christ in the uh, ascension and the glorification of his saints. So that, that was one verse that was really uh, crucial for... Uh, and again, it's the, the key is to look back at what the, what, the, what the allusion means in the original context and and use that original context as the frame, the the lens through which you look at the book. Uh, the other the other passage I would point to is more implicit, and therefore I'm I'm uh, I'm less I'm less certain that this was in John's mind as he's or in Jesus' mind as he's revealing these things. Um, but I, I think it does I think it works and it does uh, it does uh, capture a, a, a really important large movement of the book. Um, I think Genesis 1 and 2, I'm sorry, Genesis 2 and 3, um, and particularly Genesis 2, um, Adam's creation and the formation of Eve, um, that that fits a large-scale frame for the entire book of Revelation. Um, Jesus appears at the beginning of the book already glorified. He is the last, he is the last Adam, and he's glorified in his first appearance to John at the end of, of chapter 1. Jesus is the bridegroom. We know that from John's Gospel. But in John's Gospel, he never is seen with his bride. 
And what the book of Revelation is about is the formation of the bride of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is already glorified. It's, you know, John sees him and it's like he's, he's ready for the wedding. He's all dressed up for the wedding. All he needs is the arrival of the bride. And the book of Revelation is, in a sense, the, about the formation of the glorious bride that appears at the end of the book. That formation comes as the Church participates in the sufferings of the Son of Man. The book is largely about martyrdom, but it's about martyrdom as part of the formation of the bride that's going to be glorified along with her husband. Mm-hmm. So Genesis 2 and 3, again, this is more implicit, and so I can't be as dogmatic about this, but I think that sets a nice scope for the entire book. Looking at the two ends of Revelation, you have the last Adam appear at the beginning, you have the new Eve, the Church, appear at the end, and the book is a movement from uh, Jesus to Jesus and his bride. Hmm. You know, when you talk about so Jesus and his bride, this uh, maybe this surprises some listeners because they're not typically used to, to hearing about the book of Revelation in terms of the person and the work of Christ, uh, both past and, and future. Uh, you, you, though, have very helpfully uh, put Christ in the context of the whole canon uh, in terms of a, a second or a last Adam. Uh, you know, I, I immediately think of uh, Revelation 1, that, like you've mentioned, this, this vision of the Son of Man. Um, we could also go to Revelation 5, uh, such a, an, a powerful passage where <clears throat> Jesus is described in terms of this lamb. Uh, and, and Revelation 5, it opens where uh, th- this question, a daunting question, you know, is asked who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And uh, there's this... Uh, this waiting that occurs, as as and even a weeping that occurs, um, but but then comes this great news. You know, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered. And then it moves from from there to uh, the the lamb, and we're given this picture in which here is this lamb, and yet it is. Uh, a lamb that is alive, yet it is pictured as one who is slain. And from there, uh, the, the rest of the chapter goes on to describe this lamb as not only uh, the one that the, the elders are falling down before, uh, but also the one who's, who's then worthy, worthy to, to open the scroll and, and its seals. Uh, we could also go to the end of the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 22, where it talks about Jesus and uh, the the hope that the, the the bride of Christ has for his return, and, and on and on and on. Maybe you could speak for a second here. How how does how does Christology in particular? How how does it for for John? How does it come into focus? And and how is it whether it's Revelation five or a whole number of passage passages? How does it serve to frame the entire book from beginning to end? Yeah, well, I think you've done a good job of showing that it's uh, overarching the entire book. Um, Jesus appears as the Son of Man at the beginning. Uh, he comes uh, uh, toward the end of chapter 19. He appears as a rider on a white horse going out conquering. Um, he's uh, he's there in the uh, in the in the final city, the New Jerusalem, which is the bridal city. That's the bride that's been formed through the book, and it's the place where the God and the Lamb are enthroned. Uh, so uh, Jesus Jesus and his work is pervasive in the book, and 
um, yeah, that would that's another I think example of what we were speaking about earlier. That um, if missing that point, um, I think is behind behind that failure to see how pervasive Jesus is in the book is a is a failure to read Revelation as a part of the New Testament. We know the New Testament is about Jesus. <laughs> we know the Gospels are about Jesus. We know that's Paul's ministry. Uh, but then um, we kind of forget that in, when we get to Revelation, and we get, people get distracted by all kinds of other other things. But um, as in the rest of the Bible, Jesus is uh, absolutely central. As the Lamb, he's the one who's uh, enthroned in chapter 12. He receives the kingdom. Uh, he's exalted in order to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Is the conquering king that comes later on, as I said. Um, I think the particular, the particular Christological um, insight that I think Revelation uh, reinforces, it's something that you find in the rest of the New Testament, but I think it's reinforced in Revelation in, in uh, striking ways. And that is the way that uh, we, we as the saints of God participate in Christ's suffering and in his glory. Um, it's, in a sense, the, the book of Revelation, even where the book of Revelation is talking about the church and the martyrs and the saints and their suffering, it's still talking about Jesus, because the church's suffering is meaningful because it is suffering in union with Christ. Mm-hmm. The church's uh, resurrection and deliverance from suffering is meaningful because it's a participation in the glory of Christ. So even when it's talking about the church, it's still talking about Jesus Christ is the head of his church, the church is his body, and as the body, we all participate in his, in his sufferings and glory. And that's, that's one of the things that I think Revelation depicts in, in, uh, in dramatic ways that, uh, that, are, that fill out things that are in the rest of the New Testament. You know, when we talk about Revelation, you know, we're, we're discussing Christology, but uh, naturally we could move from Christology to, to just history. And uh, this raises uh, a whole complication uh, of issues, a uh, whole, whole spectrum of issues here as to, well, how do we even, how do we interpret this book? Uh, what, what type of hermeneutic should we bring to this book or not bring? You know, sometimes in the past, Christians have felt that they must choose between, say, reading Revelation in a very literal fashion, or, or maybe we could say literalistic fashion that might be more accurate. Um, uh, others have said, uh, no, there's, there's nothing like that there. It's, it's completely figurative. Uh, either one of those options may pose some challenges. You actually make the case though, uh, at one point that, uh, we need to adopt what you, you call a literal figurative, uh, a literal figurative yeah. approach, uh, say when it comes to imagery, for example, uh, or, or typology, or, or you even mentioned uh, just uh, you've hinted at this already. Just the church and faithful discipleship, some of the very real, even historical implications for for the church of John's day and, and the the church in the centuries that will follow. Uh, how is maybe you could uh, touch on this just a, a tad? How, how is how should Christians be mindful? Let's put it that way. How should they be mindful to pay attention to both literal and figurative in the book of Revelation, sometimes at the, at the very same the very same time. Right. I, I think that, that uh, that's exactly right. And my, my uh, 
the combination of terms that you mentioned is an effort to try to overcome a stark difference between literal and figurative. Because you can have, I mean, people, I think it's easy to get confused about what literal means. Um, uh, you can, I, I think I used the example in the book I, I have in the past. Um, I don't know if it's James Cagney or not. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it's somebody else in some James Cagney movie who says to somebody else, you dirty rat. <laughs> now, is that a literal statement or is that a figurative statement? Well, in one sense, it's obviously figurative because he's not talking to a rope. He's talking to a human being. In another sense, it's literal because it's referring to an actual person. So there's, there's a literal human referent. And that human referent, the person who's being called the rat, uh, actually has rat-like qualities. Uh, not because he walks on four feet or because he has whiskers or because he's got a gaily tail, but because uh, he dwells in the sewers and he's kind of a lowlife. And there's various associations that uh, are connected with rats that are intended to be attributed to that person. So there's this overlap of it's a figure in one sense, but it has, we don't want to stop just by saying it's a figure. We want to figure out what is the kind of literal import of that figure. And I think a good example in Revelation would be uh, the, the various beasts that appear in the middle of the book. You have this sequence in chapters 12 and 13 where uh, the, the dragon appears uh, in heaven ready to devour the child, the Christ child, as soon as the child's born. Uh, the Lord delivers the child from the, the dragon, uh, and the dragon pursues the child, pursues the mother, fails, but then in kind of calls up reinforcements, and the beasts are the reinforcements that the, the dragon calls up. And so what you ultimately get is a kind of unholy trinity of the, the dragon, who is Satan. The, the sea beast, I think, is the Roman Empire, and the land beast, I believe, is uh, the, apostate, uh, the apostate members of the Jewish community, particularly Jewish leaders, who are opposing the church. So you get this kind of unholy trinity. But um, when John calls the Roman Empire a beast, for example, um, Let's, let's say that that is what he's referring to. Um, that's not literally, uh, the, the Roman Empire is not literally an animal. It's a, it's a political structure. Uh, so in that sense, it's a figurative use of, of language. And yet, John wants us to think about what, what, what do these do? Uh, why would uh, the Roman Empire, how is the Roman Empire like a sea monster? Um, so the, the, the beast has a particular reference the Roman Empire, and that Roman Empire has certain qualities of bestiality to it. And particularly in this case, I, I think it's uh, the, the Roman Empire is being described as a predatory beast. Um, as the, the uh, description of the beast continues in the beginning of chapter 13, it describes the beast uh, attacking and assaulting the saints and overcoming them. Um, and so there's a, in that sense, the, the Roman Empire is a kind of bestial empire. So I, I think in... Um, so that's, that's one kind of knot of issues for interpreting the book within its original context. And then the question then becomes also, how can you use that uh, in, for Christians um, you know, 2,000 years after the book was written? How is it still relevant? If John is talking about a particular empire of the first century and calling it a beast, does that mean that the book is just about a historical set of events and not about the various challenges that contemporary Christian space. And I think the, the answer to that question is no, that the, the, the book is still relevant, but it's relevant in a kind of analogous way. So the beast 
of Revelation 13, Basibis, I think, refers to the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire is uh, has uh, analog- there are analogous empires, analogous powers in the history that follows uh, the the uh, events of Revelation. Um, you can think of totalitarian regimes of the uh, of the 20th century. I've just finished reading a uh, report from an Anglican bishop about the persecution of Christians around the world today, and it's um, uh, 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 several hundred million Christians are under threat of severe persecution today, from often from state powers. Now, uh, I think it's entirely appropriate to say those are bestial powers. Uh, just as the Roman Empire was in the first century, we can apply that same uh, figurative language to predatory powers, predatory states in our own day, and we can then begin to think about how Revelation might give us encouragement in the face of those persecutions. Uh, if, a, if a Christian in a country that's uh, where the state is a persecuting state reads Revelation and sees that while Jesus overcomes the beasts, the beasts are going to be uh, the beasts are going to be defeated. Jesus, after all, is the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is the one who tames the beasts. I can put my confidence in Jesus. I'm going to hold firm to Jesus. I'm going to be loyal to Jesus, and He's going to overcome this beast as He overcame the beast uh, that was talked about in Revelation. So I think that's the way that that's the kind of sequence of reasoning that I would suggest that uh, these. Uh, I think all of the imagery of Revelation has. Uh, has real reference in history. They're re- talking about real events and real things that happened within, uh, uh, for the most part, within a short time after Revelation was written. But then those events and those institutions, those characters in Revelation, uh, continue to reappear, or, or characters like them, institutions like them, continue to reappear throughout history. And so Revelation continues to give us a framework and a set of lenses to, to read our own moment in history. Mm. Speaking of a sequence of reasoning, uh, Revelation 20 uh, tends to be one of those passages that that Christians of all types and stripes have returned to again and again. Uh, Maybe one of the most uh, controversial passages, uh, widely interpreted passages. Uh, You you think, for example, uh, of a spectrum here, uh, everyone from uh, on one end of the spectrum, maybe a classic or a progressive dispensationalist. To a historic premillennialist, to on the other the other side, uh, someone who's more in line with uh, an amillennialist understanding of eschatology, and so on. There's probably more nuances there. I'm leaving out. Uh, in, in the history of the church, uh, this Revelation 20 is somewhat of a uh, a round table, a, a meeting ground uh, on which uh, many of these views views converge and engage one another. Uh, as in your study. Uh, Again, it's 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 so uh, specific and thorough. When you started to prepare for this passage, how did you approach Revelation twenty, and how how is it that you make sense of uh, this mention of the thousand years, and and what are Christians to uh, how how are they to walk away from Revelation twenty, and, and with what uh, with what end goal should they have in mind? Yeah, there's several things that um, I think. Um, uh, set set the set the context for trying to answer that question. Uh, one one thing that I have emphasized when I've taught on Revelation in the past, and uh, I believe I put into the book in some form or other, uh, was the the danger of overestimating the importance of Revelation twenty within the book. Hmm. 
uh, I don't want to underestimate it, but uh, for uh, there's there there can be a tendency to make uh, the millennial question the question of Revelation, and in, in some cases the the question of New Testament eschatology. Right. I think New Testament eschatology has is much broader than just about it's just just the question of the millennium. So one of the one of the points I'd want to make is the just to uh, uh, put it in put it in perspective, not to minimize its, its importance or to ignore it by any means, but also to say it's one chapter out of 22 in the book, and it's one chapter out of dozens and dozens in the New Testament, uh, and it's the one place where we have this. But, um, so that that was that was part of that'd be part of my uh, contextual uh, contextualization. The other the other thing that I I tried to do in the book uh, in my commentary. Uh, I became convinced uh, through uh, reading and studying Revelation over the course of a number of years that the book is largely written in uh, in a narrative sequence, hmm. um, and that uh, there are there are a few points where it seems it reverses, goes back in time as it were, and then moves forward again. But I think in general it's it's moving in sequence uh, from. The op- particularly from the opening scenes in heaven in chapter four, through to the end of the book, um, uh, the first part of Revelation twenty-two, you have you have some concluding kind of epilogue at, 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 in Revelation twenty-two. But from chapter four through uh, the beginning of chapter twenty-two, in general, I think we have a, a, a sequence there. We're not we're not going through the same things in a kind of cyclical pattern as some commentators have argued. There are there are cycles of sorts, but I think those cycles are part of a larger uh, linear kind of sequence. If there are complications on a linear sequence, so uh, when it, reading Revelation 20 in that context, uh, uh, I see it as the uh, as a uh, uh, um, it's coming after the fall of the, the uh, harlot city uh, that happens in Revelation 18. There's a celebration of that harlot city. In Revelation 19, uh, in my commentary, I identify the harlot city with Jerusalem, uh, not with Rome, as is often done. So I believe that Revelation is largely talking about the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And I believe the book was written, uh, Jesus revealed the visions to John a few years before that. So the, the city has fallen. You, if I, you see Jesus coming out as the conquer, conquering hero leading a procession and leading the uh, leading the captives that he's uh, that he's triumphed over and then the millennium begins so i think if you if if i'm right that the book should be read in sequence and if i'm right that uh, revelation 18 is about the fall of jerusalem then what would follow is that revelation 20 is about the uh, the beginning of a period of history that follows that that set of events I think the millennium begins um, in the first century. It begins with uh, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, uh, with the conflicts of the early church, and that culminate with the conclusion of the of the uh, that first generation with the destruction of Jerusalem. And I believe uh, since that time, we're in this millennial period that's already lasted two thousand years. I think it's the, the one thousand years is a symbolic number. That's referring to the entire period between uh, Jesus' initial work in his first coming and the coming of the final judgment. So uh, Revelation 20 
characteristics, I think, of Revelation of the millennial period are that Satan is bound, he's restrained. It doesn't mean that Satan is eliminated. Satan is not eliminated in Revelation until after the final judgment. He's thrown into the lake of fire um, after the judgment. But during the period of the millennium, uh, Satan is restrained from deceiving the nations. The other thing that's characteristic of this period is that uh, the saints are reigning with Christ. Um, both of those seem like odd things to say about the, the period of history that we're in. It doesn't look like Satan is restrained. It looks like Satan is quite active. And it also doesn't look like the saints are enthroned and reigning. Um, I think there, there are other reasons, apart from Revelation, to say that those things are already true, but not yet completely true. Satan is defeated, but not yet eliminated. The saints are reigning, but um, the things have, all things have not yet been subdued to Jesus Christ and to his people. Uh, so we're in this already not yet kind of situation. I think that's what the millennium is describing. But I, I, I think Revelation is describing a situation where uh, the saints in union with Christ are reigning over the reigning over the creation. Um, that's that. But Paul says that more literally in uh, Ephesians two when he talks about us being raised from our death and sin and transgressions, so that we can be exalted with Christ in heavenly places. Now, in Christ, we're already. Um, restored to our Adamic position of reigning of creation. Uh, and I think that's what the millennium is describing. You mentioned uh, that as saints, we will be reigning over the creation, and I don't want to take that for granted. Uh, you mentioned at one point that, uh, you know, it, rather than approaching the book of Revelation in terms of, you know, trying to decipher, you know, when the end is going to happen and all that sort of thing, uh, you uh, recast uh, the book, so to speak, and say, well, in light of this cosmic collapse, as you call it, this cosmic collapse that's unfolding, that, that, that Revelation is picturing, there, we should think of it more in terms of uh, um, the unveiling of the, the end of the old creation and the ushering in of the new creation. Now, you've just mentioned that uh, that is a great hope and promise for those who are in union with Christ. Uh, sometimes as Christians, we, for a variety of reasons, we tend to think of the afterlife merely in, in, in very popular uh, uh, popular caricatures, uh, maybe as uh, soulless or you know, bodiless uh, entities that are existing in some mysterious uh, states in, in this place called heaven, which we, we don't, you know, is a mysterious thing in and of itself. But when we come to the book of Revelation, we actually see an entirely different picture. Yes, there is an intermediate state uh, so that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. But, but ultimately, the Christian's hope is in something much more, uh, a new heavens and earth in which uh, creation itself is, uh, is, is made anew and uh, we are not only serving our king, but also reigning uh, as his vice regents over the created order. How, and, and of course, uh, by the end, the end of the book of Revelation, we think of Revelation 21. Um, we uh, see a, a full picture of this and, and the hope that is given to us in this new creation. Maybe you could speak for a second here to, you know, we've, 
talked about Revelation 20. Sometimes that gets all the attention. You mentioned, though, that uh, we, we need to also give our attention to other parts of the book just as much, if not more. How does Revelation 21 act as a bookend to conclude the book by, by pointing us to this future hope in a new creation? Yeah, I think that you're, the point you're making is a really important one. Um, Revelation 21 begins with a statement that um, John saw, sees John sees a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. Um, and that's consistent with the rest of the New Testament's teaching about the resurrection of the body. Uh, we won't have fleshly bodies, we won't have mortal bodies, but we will we'll still be embodied creatures, we'll be living in a new earth, which means that um, the the uh, the physical stuff of creation will still, in some form, be present to us. That's the world we'll be living in eternally. Um, I think that's that's really crucial because um, a, a lot of Christians, as you say, do mistake um, their future hope, or uh, they, they mistakenly think about it as a, a merely disembodied existence in heaven. Um, the, new, the, the Bible speaks of it much more as a as a as a uh, recreation, a renewal of the creation. Uh, Romans 8 would be another place where the Spirit is groaning, uh, waiting for the, re- uh, the revelation of the sons of God and the redemption of the cosmos as part of that vision. Um, so I, I think that's I think that's crucial. I, 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 uh, in my commentary, I took a, a somewhat um, uh, speculative, I guess, um, uh, view of what happened, what's happening in uh, Revelation 21. This was one place where my editors, uh, Scott Swain and Mike Allen, told me that they were not persuaded by my mm-hmm. interpretation. Uh, there are probably other places, but this is the only place they told me <laughs> that they were not persuaded. And uh, the the uh, the, uh, the the un- I don't know the uniqueness or the oddity of my view has to do with the structure of the book. Uh, the first part of Revelation 21. Uh, from verses one through eight, actually belongs to uh, the earlier part of the book. There's there's four great visions in Revelation. One of them begins at the beginning of chapter 17, and it doesn't end until 21 eight. And then a new vision begins when John is carried away in spirit up to the mountain. That's in 21:10, and then the rest of tw- chapter 21 and the beginning of 22 are part of that fourth vision. So there, uh, it's it's odd in any case. Revelation 21 is odd because John sees the new creation. He sees the holy city coming down from heaven in verse 2 of chapter 21, and then he's gone, uh, taken up to a mountain in verse 10, and he seems to again see Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So there, there seems to be two, two descents of the bridal city, which is in itself odd. But I, I'm, I was arguing that there's actually a structural distinction there, and uh, the the, the what John is seeing in the latter part of Revelation 21 is actually a different, not a different city, but he's seeing a different phase of the descent of the city. Um, I think the earlier part of Revelation 21 is a vision of the completed new creation, what ha- what we will be living in forever after the last judgment. We have the last judgment seen at the end of chapter 20, and that moves into this new heaven and new earth in chapter 21. But then when he goes up on the mountain in chapter at the end of chapter 20, or the, uh, the latter part of chapter 21, and he's looking at a city, um, there, that city, I think, is uh, a city that we... Uh, that's, that's a vision of what the Church aims and aspires to be. 
not just what we aspire to be when the new creation comes after the judgment, but this is kind of a pattern that we're supposed to conform to. Um, I think of it by analogy with the pattern that Moses saw at the tabernacle. He was taken out on Mount Sinai, and he was shown a vision of the tabernacle, and then he came down and told the Israelites, and they were to build the tabernacle according to the pattern on the mountain. David saw a pattern for the temple, and he relayed that to Solomon, and Solomon built the temple according to the pattern that the Lord had revealed to David. And now John is seeing, at the end of the end of the Bible, John sees this vision of a city, and I think he is delivering it to us, and like Moses and David, he is essentially instructing us, now, build this city, build, uh, build a people, uh, build a, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a city of God uh, that resembles the, this pattern that I'm showing you. Uh, so uh, things like the purity of the city. Um, the city is, uh, it, uh, it sheds its light to the kings of the earth so that the kings can bring their treasure into the city. Those are things that we hope for, but they're also things that we uh, are called to embody already in this age. This is the kind of people that the Church is supposed to be. So that last vision, I think, is uh, more about this current age rather than about our future hope. We do hope for the final descent of the bridal city. We hope for the new heavens and the new earth. But we're already in this city, and we've been given the pattern, and we're supposed to build and work in faith that uh, the Lord will realize this pattern by the power of the Spirit. Mm. We've been talking to Peter Lightheart about the book of Revelation, and what a rich discussion this has been. Uh, Peter, uh, you have uh, not just written two commentaries on the book of Revelation, but you have given us uh, a theology of Revelation, and one that uh, deserves to be wrestled with by, by scholars and students and churchgoers and pastors of all types. Uh, it is one that uh, I would encourage our listeners to pick up, and uh, you will find yourself, yes, certainly wrestling over uh, you know, how to approach the book of Revelation, but, but ultimately, as, as we've seen in our time with Peter, uh, coming to terms with the resurrected and risen Christ, as well as the new heavens and earth that uh, is, is certainly a future hope of Christians, but one, as Peter just mentioned, one that we see already uh, ushered into the present as a, as a reality we have every assurance of. And that, of course, is only possible because of our Savior, the, who, whom Revelation describes as the Lamb who was slain, worthy of course, of our worship and our trust. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the Credo Podcast. Thank you, Matthew. I've enjoyed myself. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.